Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. The purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. So we'll start out with a uh, brief prayer, and then uh, we'll get to some questions you may or may not have. So begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we give you thanks, and we give you praise for your word, especially the many ways that you reveal yourself to us in this world, including the Bible, the sacred scriptures. As we continue to look into your word in the Old Testament, we ask you to help us uh, to be able to come to a further revelation of you in our own lives, to be able to apply what we learn and to put it into our spiritual practices. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'll answer a few questions. And Anne, you had one? Okay. St. Jerome, he lived in the 300s A.D., St. Jerome translated it. St. Jerome was the first to translate the entire Old Testament and New Testament into Latin using the original sources. And who put the Bible it was the church in general and particular councils that would meet. They, they had partic- the, the question was, who put the Bible together? And the answer to that is the church put the Bible together. There wasn't any one individual that did it. Um, it was the church, as time went on, and they discerned through the leadership as well as through the people. But there did come a time later on in the 300s where they started to have councils where they listed the particular books that were accepted. And that became the official list or the canon. And those writings of today were not incorporated into the Bible, the Gnostic writings of Thomas. Are they, do they have value to us as Catholics? Okay, some of those books, the question was, so with the other books that weren't accepted in the canon, were those considered bad or good, or were they heretical, or were they useful? And the answer is all of the above, because some were considered heretical when they were, per, they were um, pushing a different ideology or a different theology or a different faith altogether, but they would borrow Christian uh, stories or sources to do that. I mentioned the Gnostics, but there were other ones as well. Some of the mystery religions that that were around at the time. And that is, they were into this idea of secret knowledge, and if you did these certain things, then that would give you salvation. And they were dualistic in nature, and they were a little more secretive, whereas the the Christian faith was more, well, here you you go. You can be a peasant, or you can be an important person, uh, rich and powerful, and it doesn't matter. You're going to get the same message. Um, But there were all kinds of different religions and uh, different types of experiences. Some of those would take Christian stories and then put them into their own literature. And so those were rejected for theological reasons as well as some of the stories didn't line up or they weren't accurate. Uh, There were other ones that were useful. They just didn't make it into the canon. And I mentioned like the Didache, for example, was a very ancient book written around the time that the Gospel of John was written. 
And it was, it, and still is actually, a, a good and useful book, but it's not on the same category as Scripture because it doesn't relate directly to the gospel message. It's, it's a little bit of a parable, parallel. Um, there, was, there were also some others, like the Shepherd of Hermes, that had elements in it that weren't quite on track, but most of it was, and some of it was even quoted by other ancient authors and some of the fathers of the church. So even though it didn't make it into the canon of Scripture, it's still considered useful. And uh, there were some writings as well as uh, St. Ignatius, the uh, first St. Ignatius, and then Clement of Alexandria, and some of these early fathers of the church, Justin Martyr, they had writings that, that went back fairly early, but they didn't consider those writings to be in the same classification as Scripture. So although they're good and useful, they... Uh, they weren't included in the canon because they were a different type of literature. And also something else I should mention, it's not like there was this council where the, you know, these uh, bishops all got together and, and decided which books they were going to have, and then they systematically went out and burnt all the other ones. You know, so I mean, it's, think about it, the church was illegal up until the uh, Edict of Milan, and that was in the later 300s. And so all these other works existed they just weren't used. And because they weren't used, many of them just fell into uh, dis- disuse or were lost in history altogether. You know, but it, it's not like there was this conspiracy to do that. It was just like a lot of things. If something gets used, they preserve it. If it doesn't get used, it can kind of fall off the, the historical map. Okay, another question in the back. Okay, so uh, the question is, maybe what's the difference between the Catholic books that we have in our Bible and the Protestant ones that, that don't have the same books we have? Well, I, I mentioned this yesterday, but it had to do with the Septuagint being used by the early church. Uh, the disciples in the early church used the Septuagint translation. For example, Old Testament quotations in the New Testament of the 360 quotations that are used where they borrow and quote from the Old Testament, 300 of those 360 were from the Septuagint translation, and 60 were from the Hebrew. And so it, it tells you a little bit about the usage that we have in the early church, that what they used was Septuagint uh, translation, and they accepted the books of the Septuagint translation. And then later on, because the Koinonia Greek, that's the everyday Greek language of the early church, was what was used. It was just very easy to kind of use the Old Testament ones as well. And then those books were accepted as, as part of what the church used. Now later on, because the, the Jews were retrenching in a sense, and one of, their, one of the things that they did when they retrenched, and uh, they, remember they lost the temple in 70 AD, so they needed to uh, transform their faith so that it focused more on the synagogue, and then it was more focused on the word than the sacrifice. And for that reason, they tended to be a little more conservative when they compiled their books that they accepted as canonical. So they excluded anything that was written in Greek. Now, later on, that's basically six books, six or seven, six books of the uh, Old Testament. That'd be like Maccabees, Tobit, um, Sirach, Wisdom, those types of books. So later on, in the 1500s, when Luther 
began that Protestant Reformation, he, well, he didn't actually begin it, but when he influenced it in the biggest way, he did a translation of the, of the Bible into German. And when he did it, he excluded those um, Old Testament works that were in the Septuagint but weren't in the Jewish canon. And so he accepted the Jewish canon, and he didn't accept, the, at that time, the Christian canon when it came to the Old Testament books. Uh, part of it had to do with theological reasons. He didn't like some of what was in, for example, Second Maccabees, talking about praying for the dead, for example. Um, Martin Luther also excluded other books he didn't like, like the Epistle of James. But later on, the uh, different reformers, like Melanchthon, decided that, well, we need to include all those. So when it was all said and done, uh, the Protestants tended to stick to the idea of accepting the Jewish canon and not the uh, Christian canon that was being used. Um, that being understood, the, the original King James Bible did include those uh, works that we call deuterocanonical, but they included those works, is, is a, they put it at the back of the King James Bible, but eventually um, that fell away as well. And so if you buy a King James Bible today, you just typically get the, uh, the books of the Old Testament that are accepted in part of the canon of the, of the Jewish faith and not the Catholic faith. But anyway, the bottom line is, is what ended up happening is in the Protestant Reformation, they dropped off those six books. The Catholics just maintained them. Uh, also, the Orthodox Church, they have a slightly different canon. They accept all the books we do, but they have uh, an additional one that was kind of in between. And I think that was uh, like Second Ezra or something like that, one or two Ezra. So anyway, that was a long answer to a simple question, I guess. All right, any other yeah. You know, you talk about this person accepts this and that person doesn't accept that. And whole movements and religions are formed around it that actually kind of create a separation. I wonder what God would say about that. Well, <laughs> Jesus said that he wishes that we would be one as he and the Father are one. So, I mean, that's the simple answer to that. It's like God doesn't want disunity. Remember, the whole idea of creation is how he created with this original harmony and this, uh, this oneness. And uh, because of our pride in human nature, we tend to find ways to separate and divide. You know, that being underst- understood, though, what I just mentioned about the Scripture, if you think about it, it is pretty amazing that with all of the history and with all the conflicts that we've had throughout the ages— that Protestant as well as Catholics agree on the Bible in almost every circumstance, except for just a few books that, to be honest with you, aren't, aren't the most important ones in the world. You know, so it's, it's not like there's this huge division between us. And also to understand that the, the Jews as well as the Protestants and the Catholics um, not only have, like the Old Testament, pretty much intact in, in you know, all of our traditions— but in addition to that, we agree on the manuscripts that we typically use when it comes to our uh, Bible translations. So to give you an example, the New Testament, there are some variances in, in manuscripts, very few. Um, but still, there is a common accepted Greek uh, original that we use, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, or whatever, that we use for our uh, basic source when it comes to all the translations that we use. Uh, part of that's practical because 
um, there are the best manuscripts that are used. In the Old Testament, though, for example, uh, look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were some updates that happened when they had some newer uh, manuscripts that they found with the Dead Sea Scrolls so they could update certain passages of the Old Testament. And that wasn't just done with any one faith. It wasn't just done with the Jewish faith. It was done with, with the Christian as well as the Jewish faith. So, so we really do come together when it comes to scholarship uh, quite a bit. And there's much to learn with shared scholarship. Like a lot of what we have, if it weren't for the scholarship of the Jews as well as the uh, Protestant Christians, we would, we would not have the degree of knowledge that we have today. And so we really do, um, with that intersharing, it really helps us all. Uh, to be able to grow to a better understanding of the Bible and what it says. So anyway, there's another long answer to your short question. But, all right, any other ones? Are you all, you all good? Okay. All right, so now we're going to go a little more into some theory again. And uh, after that, we'll start getting more into the text. But there, in the uh, first five books of the Bible... Uh, the Jews will call it the Torah, and then the uh, Christians would call it the Pentateuch. Some call it the Torah as well. But basically, those first five books of the Bible are the ones that tend to be the most formative. Actually, you may have heard of the Sadducees. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible, and they didn't accept the other ones like the prophets and, and the Psalms and all that as being canonical. And so... With the first five books of the Bible, there's been some scholarship trying to figure out who wrote them and what are the different sources. All right, someone's got a phone ringing. Okay. So there is a theory that I'm going to explain, and then I'm going to talk about some of the advantages and some of the disadvantages. Okay, so I guess I've got to turn on my... Pointer here. Yeah, if you haven't done it yet, turn off your phones, please. By the way, I'll give you a little secret. If a phone ever starts ringing, if you just hit any button on it, it stops ringing. Because you hear this at church every once in a while. The phone's ringing and people, they have their phone, but they don't know what to do with it. It's like, just hit any button. (laughs) All right. So this is called the J-E-D theory. And the theory goes like this, that with the first five books of the Bible, with the Pentateuch, that there's a theory that they're not all written by the same source. Now, traditionally, they would say that it was written by, it was written by Moses, you know, and this was kind of the longstanding tradition. But there were some problems with saying that everything was written by Moses. For example, when Moses is writing about himself, referring to something that happened after Moses, it's, well, it doesn't quite fit. And so early on, even people that said that the, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses uh, did have some issues with that, and they understood that there had to have been changes and additions that happened as well. Well, later on, as, as time went on, there was some different scholarship that happened, not only later on, but even earlier on, where they started having different theories that, well, maybe Moses didn't write the whole thing. Maybe it's based in a history that goes back to Moses, but maybe there were some other 
authors or redactors that tended to compile the information and put it together in the way uh, that we have it today. In the 1800s, there was a, uh, he was a Lutheran scholar from Germany called Wellhausen, and he formulized a theory that had been floating around for a while. And what he came up with, and what others agreed with him and came up with, you know, even independently, is that there were four main sources that make up the first five books of the Bible, and that's what they call the uh, the four source theory. And uh, I'm going to just mention some of what they think those four sources are. And basically, what they've done is they've done linguistic analysis, and they've looked at different uh, points of emphasis as well as different cultural connections, uh, different words that tend to get used in different areas of the first five books of the Bible, and then stylistic uh, writings as well. And they found that there are certain threads that tend to explain why certain passages are written in one way and other passages are written in another way. Okay, so the first one is what we call the Yahwistic. And according to this theory... um, these would be compiled around the time of Solomon. So think about the, when you have King David and then you have Solomon, you've got a certain stability in Israel where literature and arts can flourish. It's like a lot of things. If you look at different civilizations, when, did, when do uh, literature and the arts flourish? Usually when there's stability in the particular culture. And uh, the theory is that the Yahwistic is the oldest and most ancient of the uh, of the four sources, and it's based in the time around 900, which 900s, I should say, and that would have been during the time of King Solomon. So his courtly scribes, or you know, the priests of the time, would have basically had at their disposal many different sources that they put together, and this formed one of those four sources, and that would be the Yahwistic source. The second one, Eloist, and uh, by the way, Yahwist, they would have preferred, just that's why this word came up, uh, they would have preferred the word Yahweh for God. And that goes back, of course, to Moses and God receiving that, or God giving that to Moses. Uh, The Eloist, there is another word that is used for God, and well, there are more than one, but Elohim. And so this one would have been, um, primarily in the north. But what they say is that the Eloist source was developed after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, so sometime around 722 and after that. So basically early 700s. And there's some certain key type, um, well, theologies or, or uh, ways of writing that got worked into that as well. And so the Eloist and we'll talk about some examples in a little bit, but that would have been in the Northern Kingdom, 722-ish or something like that. Okay, now, another one is, oh, some may wonder why it's J and not Y if it's based on Yahweh. Uh, that's because in Germany, where this was developed, uh, their letter J is what they would use for Yahweh. Okay, so then the Deuteron- Deuteronomist, Deuteronomist, Mostly northern priestly code from after the fall of the north. And so this would be after the Assyrians conquered the north that the northern law code is what the book of Deuteronomy. 
All right, that would be the most obvious example, but also the histories that come after Deuteronomy, like Joshua through Kings, is considered in this Deuteronomist source. I don't know what it is about that word, but I always do that. It's been like years. Deuteronomist. Deuteronomist. But the next time I say it, I'll screw it up too. All right, so anyway, the last one is what they theorize is the priestly source. And the priestly source, they they say that happened after the Babylonian exile when the Jews started to collect the different works of what would make up the Old Testament. And then after Cyrus allowed them to go back into the promised land, that that's when they compiled and composed and, and set in stone, basically, that section of the Pentateuch. So the theory is there are four independent sources that get sewn together, which form the old or the uh, Torah or the um, Pentateuch. And now I'm all mixed and my words are all final. And so that is the theory. So I'm going to discuss some of the differences. And it does explain a lot of differences between the text. And keep in mind, this only applies Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy through Kings, basically. That's considered the Deuteronomist. And so that would be one source. So the first three books of the Bible that we have with Genesis, uh, Numbers, and... Leviticus, those would be considered, oh, I'm missing one, Exodus. Those would be considered a combination of, of the uh, Yahwist, Eloist, and Priestly. Okay, don't get too worked up about this, by the way. All right, I'm just explaining. So you're like, well, how am I going to remember all this? Don't worry about it. Okay, so, so I'm going to give you some examples. Based on what I've already told you, see if you can guess which source this would be considered. All right. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all animals that the Lord Yahweh God had made. The serpent asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said you shall not eat or even touch it lest you die. Okay, so what source would that be? I gave it away, didn't I? Yeah, so they prefer the the divine name Yahweh. And so it gets kind of put in there, but also since this is considered like one of the oldest sources, you'll, you'll notice that there are some culturally ancient aspects that are part of a lot of that text that comes from the, from the Yahwist. All right. So what the, what the Yahwist focuses on is nearness of God, the alienation of humanity, hope in God's faithfulness to his promises. Okay, so this is kind of part of their uh, theology of whoever they would say the Yahweh source is. All right, again, written down after the time of King David in the court probably of Solomon. Okay, so now... Let's look at this one. They answered him, We have dreams, but there is no one to interpret them for us. And Joseph said to them, surely interpretations come from Elohim. Please tell the dreams to me. Now, which one could that possibly be? (laughs) Eloist, yeah, obviously. So the part of that is there was an emphasis on the sovereignty of God, the spiritual identity of God's people, 
and the importance of prophecy in worship, including things like dreams and manifestations and things like that. So that would get worked into that particular source. All right, so here's, here's another one. Since on the seventh day, God was finished with the work he had been doing, he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had undertaken. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the other work he had done in creation. All right, so which one would that be? Not Yahwist. Priestly. Why? Because the seventh day thing. You know, so it has to do with the Sabbath, which is connected to the law. And uh, Israel following the law in imitation of what God did when he created. So they would typically say that the first story of creation would be coming from the priestly source. And then the second story of creation, they would theorize that that would be coming from the Yahwist. Okay, do you, do you see, generally speaking, why? Yeah. Yeah, but give me a minute because I need to go over this and then I'll explain a little bit of that stuff. When did the Hebrews start writing? Um, the Canaanites had the writing before the Hebrews, but since the Hebrews were using Canaanite language, they would have borrowed their writing system. Odds are they didn't write during Egypt, and they, they may have written some things during the exile, but it was only once they settled in the land that there would have been a real writing that was going on. So that's why, they, that's why the original theory was that it was Moses, because, well, after Moses kind of got settled there, when they were on the other side of the Jordan, he started writing all these things down. So, yeah, by the way, not to get too far into the ancient history, but you all know who the inventors of the alphabet was, Right? Phoenicians. So the Phoenicians were very close to Israel. And the influence of the Phoenicians and the Canaanites would have been one of the largest influences on the Canaanite culture and then later the Jewish culture, including their language and their style of writing. And that what they call the Fertile Crescent that starts from Mesopotamia goes up to like southern Turkey, comes back down through. Israel, and then into Egypt, the cultures that were contained within what they call that Fertile Crescent, uh, there was a lot of give and take by... The Egyptians were more isolated, but there was a lot of give and take and sharing of different thoughts, stories, and languages. And what the Phoenicians did when they did their alphabet was they were the ones that assigned letters to sounds. Because if you think about it, the, uh, the Egyptians used hieroglyphic, hieroglyphs, the hieroglyphic type of writing. And with that, they would have symbols that represented words. Later on, what the Egyptians did, when they needed to sound out words, they would have those same pictures that started with a certain syllable, and they would use that as a letter. And then they would combine the hieroglyphs in a way that you could sound things out. Well, that was kind of cumbersome, and it took a lot of learning. And so what the Phoenicians did is, why don't we just use symbols for those sounds And then that became the alphabet. So like an example is, you know, the W. So the first sound of water is wa. 
And so the W is sounding out the first sound of water. See how that works? And so they just kind of took all those different sounds, had different symbols, and then voila, you got an alphabet. So, okay, that was another little tangent. But All right, let's get back to this whole thing. All right, so I talked about priestly. Okay, so here's another one. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and decrees I proclaim in your hearing this day, that you may learn them and take care to observe them. The Lord, our God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did he make this covenant, but with us, all of us who are alive here this day. All right, so which one would that be? So some are saying priestly. Some are saying Deuteronomist. It's actually Deuteronomist because it comes from Deuteronomy. But also uh, another reason is because um, in Deuteronomy, you've got Moses giving a lot of speeches. And so, yes, it's the northern law. So remember the split kingdom, north and south? So there were slightly different cultural norms in the north compared to the south. And uh, before the split kingdom, even, there were some slight differences. But after the split kingdom, those were even more so. And the theory goes that in the north, they took those traditions and wrote them down in a way that was slightly different than what would have been important to people who were writing down the priestly code. All right, so since Deuteronomy uh, is older, they thought that that would explain the original law. And then later on, since the priestly source was something written after the Babylonian exile, and the emphasis was codifying Jewish practices, then that would be the newer of the law uh, codes. So you've got the, the older Deuteronomy and the newer, the priestly. All right, so anyway... Again, don't get lost in these details. I'm just trying to explain the thing. All right, so if you notice, I keep saying the theory and that sort of thing because like a lot of things, there are theories that can be very useful to explain differences, but the problem is when people make theories absolutes and they say that everything has to fit in these nice four categories. And then they make the dating and they make the text conditional on fitting in those four different sources. And then all of a sudden you've got these arguments that people are doing when they're saying, well, does this fit into the Yahwist or does it fit into the Elohist? And then they start changing their minds and trying to figure out. And, and I think one of the problems that can happen with the four source theory is that it tends to be um, something that is accepted um, wholesale when we should be a little more cautious. Okay, so I'm going to explain some. First of all, here's some of the benefits. It does explain differences in patterns. So here's some of the problems. It was originally developed in Protestant, German, um, and critically thinking Germany. Now, there's nothing wrong with Protestant, critically thinking, or German, but the times were very different in that era than they were in the time of ancient Israel. And so it's just natural that people will bring their own ideologies and their own biases into the scholarship that they're doing. And uh, just to give you a, a real easy example of this, have you ever seen those, those Renaissance paintings that they show in Northern Europe when they have the Annunciation or something like that? And you see a picture of Mary, and what does she look like? She looks like a Florentine princess or something, right? Or, or she looks like she's Dutch. 
And what happens is it's just second nature. People um, just put on something that is part of their culture, and they're so near to it uh, that they, they don't recognize that. And so it, it seems that there's some of that going on here. And let me give you a, just an example of that. So first of all, since Wellhausen tended to be Lutheran, he also tended to, because of the age and the time, tended to be anti-Jewish and anti-Catholic. Maybe not outwardly so, so much, but it was part of the bias of the day. And so therefore, what would be considered good? Well, remember, Catholics have the Mass, and they like that Eucharist stuff, and they have, you know, sacrifice and, you know, the, uh, that kind of thing with the Eucharist. And, and the Jews, well, you know, they have their rituals and their law, and they like their sacrifices and everything, too. And so what is real religion would be kind of those original stories, and they would be the, more of the Bible kind of things. And, and so he would consider the priestly source to be lesser literary value than the Yahweh source, just because of the bias that was kind of common in the day. Uh, in addition to that, the dating itself seems to project some of that. And what I mean is, well, since, since the, the priestly law is not as important as something like Elohim or, or Yahwistic sources, Elohist and Yahwistic sources, then let's make those the oldest, like those are the original ones, and these later ones are somehow less important because, well, the original faith was somehow more pure, whereas it got corrupted by those Jews and later on, you know. Other, but you get the idea, right? So there's, there's kind of a, a bias that can be built into that. Another, another problem is that it's, uh, a lot of this is based on a rational logic that did not exist in the ancient world. Like, when did the scientific method become normal? In the 1600s, basically. Now, Wellhausen was writing in the 1800s. Um, it was also the post-Enlightenment, because Enlightenment was around the 1700s, late 1600s, 1700s. So a lot of this critical thinking and reasoning and linear reasoning became the norm of the day. And they're so close to it, you can't help but think in those categories. We do the same thing. We're, used, we're, we're so used to this scientific worldview that we have a hard time thinking like ancients thought. And so when we read things, we tend to impose on what we read a, a certain rational Western style that did not exist when the original writing was done. All right, so I'm going to give you a, a little bit of an example here. I'll give you a couple examples because they're kind of fun. All right. Then Yahweh's word came to Abraham in reply, such a one will not be your heir. Look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so will your descendants be. He told him, Abraham put his faith in Yahweh, and this was reckoned as righteousness. He then said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this country as your possession. Lord Yahweh, Abraham replied, how can I know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old she-goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a pigeon. He brought him all these, split the animals down the middle, placed each half opposite of the other, put the birds, but the birds he did not divide. And wherever birds of prey swooped down the carcasses, Abraham drove them off. 
Now, as the sun was on the point of setting, a trance fell on Abraham, and he fell into a deep, dark dread, or sleep, and sleep uh, descended upon him. Okay, so what did I just read? So God promised Abraham what? So how did he promise descendants? What did he say? Look at the stars in the sky, right? Yeah, okay, so keep that in mind. Look at the stars in the sky. And then later on, what happens? Abraham does this little sacrifice thing, right? And then what? He goes to sleep. Kind of. But what else happened in there? The sunset. How are you going to look at the stars in the sky if the sun sets? How do you explain that? Anyone know? Anyone got a guess? Okay, well, anyway, what I'm, what I'm showing you is something that would not have been an issue at all in ancient language and culture, but it is an issue for us because we're so linear. We think, wait a minute, God showed him the stars of the sky and said, these are your descendants, blah, 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 and then later on the sunset. And we're like, what? If the sun's out, you can't see the stars. You know, so we're in this Western mindset where there's this strict linear progression of the story. And in the ancient world, they would have said, no, God showed them the stars and, you know, and it's okay to have different aspects of stories in one story to explain the deeper significance. And the deeper significance is that the stars in the sky are like your descendants and then you're going to go on to a trance, you know, and so when the sun sets, it doesn't necessarily have to be this linear type thing. Um, and I mentioned this as being a bit of a problem because even today I, I will read things by people who say, well, Abraham said... Abraham had to look up at the stars that weren't in the sky because it was sunny out. And this is God's way of saying you've got to trust in him that, yes, there are stars, even if you can't see them. And anyway, they're kind of going on these weird roundabout things to try to explain it when they don't need to because the ancient world, it would not have been an issue. All right, so the ancient world didn't have the same scientific, strict, rational, literacy-type things that we have. All right, so I'll give you one more example of this. This is from Genesis 42. Okay, so this is the story of Jacob's sons returning to Canaan. And when they saw Joseph, they put... Uh, Joseph put some silver goblets and different things and in, in food in the, in the knapsacks as they were traveling back. So Joseph gave the order to fill their packs with grain, to put back each man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their supplies on the donkeys and went away. But when they camped for the night, one of them opened his sack to give the donkey food for fodder and saw his money and there was a mouth there it was in the mouth of his sack he said to his brothers my money has been put back here it is you're like behold my money has been put back here it is in my sack explanation point and then their hearts sank and they looked to one another in panic saying what has god done what has god done to us so basically joseph did this as a trick 
because it made it seem as if they stole the money from Joseph by putting the money back in their sacks. All right, so returning to their father, Jacob and Canaan, they gave a full report of what had happened. The man who was the Lord of the country spoke harshly to us. Now they're talking about the meeting they had with Joseph, accusing us of spying on the country. We told him we're honest men. We're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons after the same father. One of us no more, and the youngest is not present with our father in Canaan. But the man who was Lord of the country, Joseph, said to us, this is how I shall know whether you were honest. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take supplies for your starving families and be gone. But bring me back your youngest son. And then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And then I shall give your brother back to you and you'll be free to move about the country. As they emptied their sacks, each discovered his bag of money in his sack. And all of a sudden it's behold, you know, so it's like, why is it that they're on their way and then they stop and they check their sacks and they go, oh no, you know, we've, we've got this money in our sack. And then it's almost like they've got amnesia. They forget about it. And then they go down and when they meet Jacob, they open their sacks again. And it's like, oh no, we've got all this money in the sack. And again, because the story needs to be told that there was surprise and it doesn't necessarily follow that it has to be so logical. Like we would think that you can only do that once. Okay. So basically what I'm saying is the ancient literature does not follow this type of radical Um, rational logic that existed in the ancient world. And here's the other issue is there's this overall greater unity in the narrative than that J E D P can fully explain. And so style of writing is different. So in, in the ancient world, especially in the Bible, you'll see, and I'll show this later on these things they called chiasms and uh, different structures of writing where there's um, really strong parallels and connections that would be very difficult for a later redactor to put together in a manner that would follow that strict pattern. And so now all of a sudden you've got this theory saying that, well, you've got Priestley here and you've got Deuteronomist here and, and all of a sudden, but in spite of all that, there's this intricate web of connection that would be extremely difficult to put together if that's what those four sources came and they put them all together. So basically, there's, there's a narrative hole that that four-source theory has a hard time explaining. Finally, many people with, uh, many people with uh, a lot of good knowledge of ancient Hebrew show that there are also problems with language. And one of the problems in language is that the words that are used at different eras in the biblical writings will depend on different historical um, norms. So during the Persian period, for example, they'll have these Persian loan words. During the Babylonian exile, there will be some Babylonian words in there. So one, one book that I read recently by uh, Gary Rensberg, he, he's a literary analysis as well as a, a Bible scholar, but he was talking about the dating. And he says that the dates are all wrong, especially for the last two sources. And that'd be the Deuteronomist and the priestly source. And again, he says it's because of the bias of the original theory. Wanting to put all that is the newer parts rather than the most ancient. He says, linguistic analysis demonstrates that the entirety of the Torah, and certainly Genesis, is composed in classical biblical Hebrew, not late biblical Hebrew. And the dividing point for those two strata is 550 BC in the period of the Babylonian exile. So, in other words, 
the priestly source couldn't have been composed after the exile because the style of Hebrew is classical Hebrew that goes back much further. You see that difference there? All right, it says, All languages undergo change in their history, often gradual, but typically there is a radical change during and after times of political and social upheaval. And then he uses the example of Old English and Middle English after the Norman conquest of Britain in 1066. You know, Old English and Modern English changed during that time, or Classical English. Thus it is with Hebrew. But the linguistic developments that one finds in the text dated to the exile and beyond are not found in Genesis. And so, in other words, linguistic differences that you would expect to find using this theory don't exist in the way that it is. And then he says, the easiest demonstration of this is the following. During the Persian period, loan words from Persian enter the Hebrew language by the dozens and can be seen by looking at relatively short books of Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So that was definitely after the exile. Yet the Hebrew used in those three books is different than what we find in the Pentateuch. By contrast, not a single Persian loan word occurs anywhere in the extensive five books of the Torah. All right, so that's kind of interesting too. All right, so basically what, what he's saying is there's another unity in this. And he's saying showing parallels between old uh, Babylonian writings, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then the creation story, or not creation, but the flood story, show a, a following of the same story in a parallel that would not have been possible if you had various sources putting them together. You know, so there's a certain structure and parallel that follows that, and they didn't have the Epic of Gilgamesh at the time of Wellhausen. That came later. So, so anyway, what he says, and actually I, I pretty much agree with this as well, I accept the obvious differences between P and D and recognize the laws in the cultic material of the Torah come from distinct sources. I'm unwilling, however, to posit one source as being earlier than the other. Well, one source may be earlier than the other, but the point of describing this is sometimes people are, are too set on accepting scholarship that gets passed down without critically analyzing it. So it seems that a reasonable explanation is that there are distinct differences, but to date them the way they've been dated based on everything else that we know shows that there's at the least problems with the dating. What this linguist says is that he believes that the majority of the Pentateuch was written in the time of Solomon and King David. Because there's such a unit of narrative with language and uh, the unity of the text that that seems to be what he thinks is the best solution to this. So anyway, scholarship, right? It, 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 I'm just pointing this out because there, there are different ways to think. And you can be a good Catholic taking either approach. You know, but um, most people, I will say, do not agree with what I just wrote, but they stick to the four-source theory and tend to show those, those four dates, and they just kind of shift the dates a little bit. You know, so I'm not saying I'm right even. I'm just saying that there are problems with just, just accepting wholesale scholarship just because it's what everyone always accepts. But that's the nature of things, right? So, Okay, so now we're going to have to get into some actual... Bible stuff. Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Okay, so I, I somewhat mentioned this in our first uh, little study that we did. But 
when we're looking at the creation story, there, there are a few things to keep in mind. And first of all, it, it talks about, it's not talking about science, and it's not talking about um, how specifically everything was created in, in a scientific sense. But what it is talking about is why God created, and the story of creation is done in a way where it's written in a style which is metaphorical in some respects, and uh, it's a style of literature that goes back to the, the very ancient world. And people would not have used that to try to assert that it was literally and scientifically done in this way, because as I mentioned, we're thinking in Western logic, and we're not thinking back into the mindset of the people who originally wrote this or understood it. So, but there are some very strong connections here. And one is the idea of sin and the effects of sin that goes out into creation itself. So the idea is that when God created, there was this original harmony and his original intention was that there would be uh, an original harmony and that creation itself, as well as human beings, would conform to that harmony. Sin happens and disobedience and so because of that, it goes out into the world gradually over time and then gets worse and worse until there's this, um, uh, the, the need for the flood. And then the flood was an attempt at a, at a recreation to purify things and make things right again. But after the flood, very quickly after that, Noah and the kids basically kind of go off the rails again. And so now, you know, it continues on, but... But the idea there is, is that's kind of built into the understanding. There's also this understanding of what is like clean and unclean. You ever heard those terms used? You know, something's clean or unclean or something's pure or, or impure. And a lot of it is based in this idea of a holiness code. Um, creation itself has a bit of that built into it. Like, you know, the salt water is considered unclean. The sky is considered clean. I, I'm using that in a rough sense, like good and bad, because there was, an, there was a sense in the ancient world that, you know, light, good, darkness, bad. And they had a, a, a sense of this. And so they kind of built that into the story. And the reason why there's things like clean and unclean, to give you a brief answer, is because the clean conforms with what is good and how God created it to be in its original harmony, and the bad is anything that strays from that. All right, to give you an example, um, in the water, you've got animals that live there. Now, good animals that are doing what good animals should do in water, um, they, first of all, should have fins, and they should swim, and there are certain things that, that they should do, and if they don't do that, then they must be deformed in some way or somehow less perfect like shellfish, right? And uh, like eels and things without scales. And so the Jews could eat fish with scales and they couldn't eat eels and shellfish because they don't have fins, they don't have scales, and they don't swim. And it was a way that that a Jew, by eating um, clean animals, would say that I am conforming myself, not only my morals, but even in my own actions, to the original intention of creation as God intended it to be. And so that whole clean and unclean thing goes back to this idea of trying to strive toward the ideal of that perfect creation that God intends. And then over time, you know, that will be restored is, you know, what they were thinking. But in the meantime, I want to live within this ideal. 
So does that make sense, generally speaking? And it really does explain a lot. I know there, there are different theories, and I'll talk about some of those theories a little bit, but that's the basic idea. I mentioned this before, and I used a word that is a philosophical term, but I think we can all understand it, phenomenology. And that's basically where you describe what you see, but you aren't so worked up and worried about whether it's real or not. Um, one example is, uh, did you all see the sunrise this morning? All right, now there's always going to be one in the crowd that says, well, the sun doesn't actually rise, you know. It's the earth that spins, you know. So, uh, but phenomenology is saying what we see is what we are describing. And, and so, therefore, what the ancients saw is what they describe with this creation story. And so that's why, well, we see water come down, right? Where does it come from? I don't know, but it comes down. So it must come from up there. And then we also have water below, right? So that must be down there. But somehow we're on solid ground. Well, that must be somehow, there must be pillars or something holding the ground up so that we're up here. And uh, they describe it in this way where they see the, you know, little holes in the sky at night. That's where the light gets through. And then you've got the rain that comes down. And, and then, well, I don't know if the earth's round or not, but I probably haven't even thought about it. I just look around and it seems like it's just like a big dome, like those snow globes that you shake up. So they kind of describe things in this way. Now, like I said, they're not worried about whether it's scientifically true or not. They're just describing it as part of the creation story because they, they want to make sure that they're telling the bigger message, and that is why God created and, and how he did it in its essential nature, not in its scientific aspect. And so anyway, but this is, this is a good thing to keep in mind. If you have this image in your head and you read the creation story of Genesis, you'll say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, creating the dome and the, the floodgates and the waters and the abyss and um, this shale thing right there. That was considered the underworld. So um, later on, the, the Jews and other religions and cultures as well had this understanding that when you die, you go into this kind of place called Sheol. Um, in the Greek, they called it Hades. And so um, when, when you hear in the Apostles' Creed that, like, and then Jesus, after he died, he went to hell and then he rose. And you're like, why would Jesus go to hell? Well, it wasn't hell in that sense. It was Sheol or Hades. It was the underworld where the, uh, where the dead would be waiting, in a sense, for something to happen. It was like this shadowy kind of existence thing. So basically, Jesus dies. He preaches the gospel message to all the people who have died before him. And then they have the um, free will to choose or to reject him and those who choose him they go with him the gates of heaven are open you know so anyway this is all built into the apostles creed and they just assume everyone knows it but i always get that question why did jesus go to hell so it wasn't hell hell it was just hell (laughs) all right so you notice some of the things that i mentioned in the original one how did it happen how did creation happen it happened by god it didn't happen by the gods um, it was one God. It was not competing gods. Also, it's very clear, people are not gods. They're creation. And creation is good. It's really not dualistic. Even though it specifically didn't mention water as being good, that was more for cultural norms than it was the idea that God took and created all this stuff. But, but the, the fact that, that he's saying it's good is very unique and different because most of the other creation stories did not show 
the material world as being good at all. In the uh, Babylonian sense, the, uh, uh, there was the, the bad God that out of her body the earth became. So the implication is that creation itself is bad as well. And actually that gets worked into, we talked about the Gnostics a little bit. They had this mindset that spirit is good and then body is bad. So anything material is considered evil or bad. And so you need to supersede what is bad and evil and get out of your body so you can be what is good in the spiritual world. But in the Jewish understanding, since creation itself is good, that means both spirit and um, body and all of creation, heavenly as well as earthly, is good. Um, It's just, you know, even today, though, I think you probably hear these sort of things, right? I can't wait to get out of my sinful body so I can just be a good spirit or an angel with Jesus in heaven and um, but that's not really Christian. The, the Christian understanding is that our bodies are good. And there will be this resurrection of the body that happens at the end of time. And so, therefore, we have an obligation uh, to preserve uh, and to care for our bodies as well as our souls. Anyway, not to get too far off on that. But that goes back to the original creation story. Also, people have a responsibility and a share in God's plan. So God just doesn't create human beings and then say, okay, go do your thing. He says, no, you, you need to have stewardship over creation. And also, people are the high point of creation. And in both stories, actually, the high point of the story is when God creates human beings. And human beings are not only governing with God's own authority, but they are the high point of creation. So it's, it's not true, for example, in the classical uh, Jewish and Christian understanding that, um, I'm trying to think of a cute animal, dolphins, dogs, I don't know. They're not equal to people when it comes to God's worldview according to Scripture. You know, that, that people are the high point of creation. But as we all know, with responsibility comes, <laughs> how does that go? With blessing comes responsibility or something like that. With power comes great responsibility. And so, so you've got this whole Adam and Eve thing. You've got pride and disobedience that enters into creation. And because of free will, that people are able to choose whether they want to follow and be obedient or not. And that idea of free will is another very Jewish thing. Because in a lot of the other cultures, they had this sense of fatalism. And... You can, you can try all you want to try to get the attention of the gods, but if they do something kind to you or not, it's only because it's a whim, and they're feeling sorry for you, maybe or maybe not. You know, but, but like in the Greek worldview, for example, um, you would just keep yelling out a particular god, Athena, 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 and then hope she hears you, because if she does, she might just try to shut you up by doing what you want. But she might zap you at the same time, so you don't really know what you're going to get. But... You want to please the gods, and gods are are not all good, so many of them, what you want to do is you want to um, offer sacrifices and try to please them so that even if they're not so good, they might treat you kindly. You know, so anyway, but these sort of things are very foreign to the Jewish mindset where God is good and we are in relationship with him. And, And there are certain standards and structures that we have in creation and that we have free will. And we can make decisions either for or against God's original um, harmony and creation, or we can go against that. All right, was that too much? Okay, there you go.
Yeah. Okay, so actually that's a good question. So the, the question is about sacrifice. Um, did that come from unbelievers or believers or how did that work? Well, sacrifice predates anything we know historically. That from the beginning of time, it seems, well, at least at the time when there were humans that, that knew there was something greater than them and they were offering sacrifice one way or another. And so animal sacrifices, for example... Across the globe, people were offering sacrifices like that in different ways. They would offer sacrifices with grains and, and with produce and with animals and even people. And the, the Jewish understanding was, go ahead and sacrifice animals, but don't sacrifice humans. There are a few isolated incident, incidences in the Old Testament where people will um, sacrifice, for example, their daughter but that's not considered something that is praised or considered good. You know. But still, sacrifices predate basically anything we know historically or anything that's written down or any of the religions that we currently have in today's world because it's just part of existence. But what, what it does in the Old Testament is it brings those sacrifices and makes them, okay, you can sacrifice animals only to God. And you have to do it in a particular way in a particular place oftentimes, in particular times. You know, so there's regulation with the sacrifices. So if God is good and we're in a relationship with him, why do we do sacrifice? Why do we do sacrifice? Well, we have, to, we have to look at sacrifice different than we might today. And this kind of goes to our cultural differences. But as an ancient, when I'm trying to be in communion or relationship with God, with God or the gods in a sense, then I feel like I need to offer something. And it's kind of like, even today we say, I'm going to offer praise or I offer prayer. And we do that sort of thing. It's just natural. We don't even think about it. In a similar mindset, an ancient would say, well, I need to offer sacrifice as well as prayer and as well as my deeds and this kind of thing, living a certain way. Um, but we still have sacrifices today. It's just the nature of the sacrifices have changed. The understanding of the Mass is that we are offering the risen Jesus to the Father in, in the Eucharist, that that's part of our prayer at Mass. Um, the difference is that Jesus made it in a way that it's an unbloody sacrifice of the risen Jesus that we represent that original and one sacrifice of him on the cross. Um, anyway, I don't have time to get into the whole thing, but in a sense, when we're at Mass, what we're supposed to be doing when we pray at Mass is, Offering the risen Jesus to the Father is part of our prayer. So we are still offering sacrifice. And then even the bread and wine, um, we take grain and grapes and we make bread and wine out of it. We offer that to the Lord. The Lord gives it back. And then we, we at Mass, we bring that up as kind of a gift. And then we offer it to God. God gives it back. And then we say prayers over it. And then it's Jesus. And then we offer that to the Father. And then God gives it back. We receive communion. And then after receiving communion, we offer that back by going out into the world and, and giving the risen Christ to others. So this give-and-take relationship is built in, but it's just a little more subtle than it used to be back then. Back then, it's like, I got this nice crop of grapes. I need to give some to God, so I'm going to offer sacrifice and offer that to him and give it over at the temple. So anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but... But that, yeah, that's a good question. There's something innate about human beings that, that want to offer to 
God or the gods. Okay, so we do have some... Uh... Yeah, i got to skip that one. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Adam and Eve a little bit. Um, some of this you've got to look at in um, almost like metaphorical language or poetry, like the snake. It's like crawling on the belly and dust and enmity. And then you have Eve, and she's the one that, that gives birth. And the snake becomes symbolic of Satan. But that developed a little later on. In the original story, there was this idea of disruption. But it's, it's told in a story-like thing. And so what you have going on here is temptation, deceit. And uh, the, the Old Testament also talks about cleverness which is praised, but deceit, which is for evil purposes, is not. You know? So it's kind of this, um, uh, I don't know what to call that, this back-and-forth type of, of story calling. And then you've also got, after the fall, this description that, okay, now because of your disobedience, there are going to be some problems. Women are going to have pain in childbirth. Men are going to have to work hard and sweat off their brow. And so it shows that the original easiness of, of life and that original harmony is no longer there. And so things are just going to be rougher than they used to be or, or could have been. Sin increased. And then there was this point just before the flood. And you've got these, uh, what they call the Anakim. That, those are these like, it's like a mythological almost sounding thing. Uh, let me look that up just because. Because this is kind of like the, the last straw before the flood. Nephilim. Okay, so when people began be Okay, when people being numerous on earth, daughters had been born to them, the sons of God, looking at the women, saw how beautiful they were, and married, and many of them they had chosen... And Yahweh said, My spirit cannot be indefinitely responsible for human beings who are only flesh. Let the time allowed each to be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and even afterwards, when the sons of God reported to the women and had children by them. These were the heroes of the days gone by, men of renown. So that's a bit of a mythological um, inclusion. And it goes back to an ancient thought that there were these giants that were kind of like gods that um, mated with people at one point and created these giants. So you'll, you'll see this kind of pop up from time to time and you'd be thinking, where did that come from? So it seems totally unrelated, but what it does is it, it kind of shows the depravity of the human situation. So God needs to start over. And so basically it was just a, a transition into the flood story. Okay, but before that, Cain and Abel. Um, you all know the story of Cain and Abel. Abel's sacrifices were good, and Cain's were not considered so good. And so um, Cain, of course, in his jealousy, murders Abel. And there's this expression of the blood crying out. So keep in mind, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in class or talked to someone afterwards, but the Holy Land... Think about Israel in the time of King David at the furthest expanse of its empire and the region around it. That was considered the Holy Land and that that land itself was considered sacred. 
And so if you murder someone on the holy land, you're not only desecrating God's morals, but you're desecrating his very land. And that blood that goes into the soil is a desecration, not only because of what you did, but because of the land itself, which is sacred. All right, does that make sense? Okay, so did I mention this yesterday? Okay, so I talked about how that's why Jesus was buried. Yeah, so it's the same sort of thing. So this is Cain um, was killed, killed uh, Abel. The blood goes into the land, and so that in itself is considered something that is, is desecrating, desecrating that land. And that's why it says, and that's why later on it says things like the blood crying out to God, you know, this kind of idea. But at the same time, there is this, this kind of mercy that happens. And so you see the story of, this is in the second creation story, where God is sewing together tunics, you know, and, and from fig leaves and stuff like that. So it shows that there's still a relationship between God and his people. And that covenant, even though it was breached, wasn't entirely lost between Adam and Eve. And that will be renewed at the time of Moses, and then renewed in Abraham, and renewed again um, with, with Moses. Okay, so the flood story. I wonder how far. So I mentioned this already, but with the flood story, you've got sin and wickedness that contends, uh, continues to infest uh, the human existence to the point where the punishment for it, and also not necessarily punishment, but kind of a renewing of, of creation happens with this flood. So nine eight. Okay, so listen to the language, though. So God spoke as follows to Noah and his sons. I am now establishing my covenant with you and with your descendants to come. And with every living creature that was with you, birds, cattle, and every wild animal with you, everything that comes out of the ark, every living thing on earth, and I shall maintain my covenant with you, that never again shall all living things be destroyed by the waters of the flood, nor shall there ever again be a flood to devastate the earth. Okay, so God has made a covenant relationship with Noah and his descendants by implication. And so this is also showing that, that idea of God, even when he acts in these, these ways, he still renews his covenant and brings people back into relationship with him. Now, I wonder, did I do that? No. Nah. Yeah, I got to go back. Okay, so where do I put that? I had a parallel of the flood story, but I don't think I have it so close. All right. I uh, thought I had a parallel. There was a, an ancient uh, Babylonian, Sumerian uh, story. It was called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Has anyone ever heard of that? Yeah. Okay. So this Epic of Gilgamesh was written in Mesopotamia. And there you've got the Tigris and the Euphrates, and you've got these two rivers. There were floods that happened. 
And the story got written up about this great flood, and there was this particular epic style of writing, like a mythical epic style of writing, where there was a particular hero. Yeah, there's the parallel. I know it was in the book, but yeah, page 101 has that. Thanks. And what's interesting is that the, there is a parallel not only in the story, but in the sequence of the story. And the sequence holds together very nicely. But this is another one of those examples where, you know, the, the original epic of Gilgamesh and the flood story have this parallel that wouldn't be there if you had individual authors putting together traditions and forming the flood story like the four source theory says, you know. So it seems like at least in that respect there's uh, something going on there. But but you've got, for example, materials, dimensions, and then numbers of decks. And then you've got the mountaintop landing before the sending of the birds. And then all go free, and then there's a sacrifice. So the, the sequence follows a, a logical order, ancient world logical order. And, and it happens in the Epic of Gilgamesh as well as the, the flood story of Noah. Now, one of the questions that that people will ask is, well, which came first? Was, was it the uh, biblical flood story or was it the Epic of Gilgamesh? Which of those two um, came first? And some people will say that it is the biblical story that came first and a long oral tradition was passed down through the ages. Um, but I, I should say that most biblical scholars will say that the Epic of Gilgamesh came first for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is it describes more uh, what would have been in the time and the place of Mesopotamia than what would have been in Canaan. In Canaan, there's one little river called the Jordan, and it's very likely that floods would have been part of the memory of the people like that. Uh, the other is it describes the, um, the type of language and the style of writing tended to be what would be Mesopotamian in nature as well. Also, the, the culture in Mesopotamia was... Uh, much stronger. And so writing developed there first, and it's more likely that the more dominant culture would influence the lesser cultures than the other way around. But even so, I think there's something to be said about how these stories, as I mentioned, were passed around. And as they got passed around, the Jewish equivalent tended to show that there is God, and, and yes, these things in, in ancient history happen, but God's hand was behind it and his purpose was behind it. And there was a reason why he wanted to renew creation. So they, they took that story, but they applied a uniquely monotheistic and Jewish context to it so that it's able to describe something more than, than just a literal history. Okay, so there's another... Uh, Okay, let me, let me give you this quick little explanation. Um, remember when I talked about Western logic? So when Jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest seed of all seeds, um, did you all know there's actually smaller seeds than a mustard seed? So does that mean Jesus wasn't telling the truth? It was an example, right? Yeah, and so 
sometimes I think people are overly analytical about stuff like that. And so Jesus is using an example. And in that world and at that time, they weren't saying, this is scientifically proven to be the smallest seed of all seeds. And, you know, it wasn't that. It was just like he was using an example of something small, something big, something of scale. And that's all it goes on. Um, also, there was one time when Jesus is talking about um, Abiathar and then Abilamech, these in Matthew. And, and one is he's, he's saying that Abiathar was the one that offered, um, that allowed David to offer sacrifice when it was actually Abilamech. And so does that mean that Jesus was wrong? Or maybe Matthew was wrong when he wrote about it? Well, this is another way of looking at it. When we see these little discrepancies in Scripture, you have to ask, first of all, was it important to the author of the time? And then secondly, was there a reason why he would have said that that maybe we're not aware of? Or thirdly, that it was a, an accepted understanding of the people he was talking to, and for him to go and, and describe everything accurately would take him away from his primary point. You know, it's kind of like when you're talking to a kid sometimes and you're talking to the kid and, and they say something that, that may not be strictly true, but you don't want to get into all that because you want to explain your main point. You know, so sometimes you, you have to look at scripture like that. Often they weren't overly concerned with pinpoint accuracy because they had a bigger message that was more important. And so they're willing to, to let a few things slide so that they can zero in on what's most important. And so, in other words, don't get all bent out of shape if, you, if you're thinking, well, why does the Bible say there was these giants that, you know, that lived in history? And why, why does the Bible say, you know, that, uh, like the, the flood story, you know, kind of included it in a certain way? Um, anyway, it's just sometimes the point is more important than the, the pinpoint accuracy of every little aspect of it. Okay, Tower of Babel. This is a ziggurat, and in Babylonia, remember when I talked about that story of, you know, Marduk, when they built this, the original Enuma Elish, they built this, uh, the creation stories afterwards, they built this tower, and it was, uh, it was a ziggurat. And uh, they still have these over in Iraq, and they're like pyramids. So we all know the ones in Egypt, you know, they build pyramids. Actually, in in the New World, down in Mesoamerica, they also have pyramids. And then in Mesopotamia, they have pyramids. In Thailand, they have pyramids. So it seems that there's this natural desire by people to think that, well, we need to, you know, kind of God's metaphorically up there. We're down here, so we'll build something so we can get up there. And so the story of, of Babel is, explains a few things. Why are there more languages if God created all people and all this sort of thing, why are there various languages? And so it's a story that just kind of describes in a, a story-type way that, well, here's why. Because um, at one time, everyone spoke the same language, and then they decided, we're so proud and we're so mighty, we're going to build a pyramid and a tower, and we're going to climb to the top of it, and then we will force God to keep us as equals almost. So there's a pride and an arrogance that comes with that. And... Because of that, because of people's arrogance, that God strikes them down and confuses them with language. So now they have all these different various languages and no one can understand each other. You know, but that's uh, showing a historical 
aspect as well, that there really were these towers that they were describing in that Tower of Babel. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the story of Pentecost is, overcomes that because here you have the confusion that causes various languages. And then in Pentecost, once everyone receives the Spirit, what happens? Everyone understands each other, right? So this shows more so that that beginning of the restoration that happens with Jesus in the sending of the Spirit. All right, so it goes back to this Tower of Babel thing. So... Okay, so I did mention that. I want to talk a little bit about some of these different... This is what we call the Fertile Crescent, starting with the Persian Gulf. Here's the Tigris and Euphrates. So you go up here, and then you have... This is like Assyria. This is Babylonia, and also called Mesopotamia. Sumer would be considered down here. And then if you continue going up, this area called the Hurrians. So this area up here... And then down here with Haran would have been the area that Abraham came out of. Now, you'll notice in this map, it shows Ur right here. And then you've got this big, long trek where Abraham goes through Babylon and, and then up, up to Haran. And then later, when they're up here, then they come down into the promised land. You know, but it almost shows it like one big lap. And the reason why this map is the way that it is is because they found a city called Ur, in the southern Mesopotamia. And the archaeologist who found it was all happy. And he's like, I found the birthplace of Abraham, Ur, because it says Ur. And it did say that in the documents. And uh, to this day, most people actually believe that that's where Abraham is from. Um, But there are some problems with that. Um, One is, every time you look at cultural elements uh, that show where Abraham and his family were from, it always shows it from up here. Also... There was a, a city in southern Turkey that, uh, to this day, has the tradition that this is the birthplace of Abraham. And now it's in Arabic, and so the name of the city is, is different. So I wonder what that was. It was like Ursi or... Anyway, but it has contained in it uh, the first letters of Ur. And you'll notice that in... Genesis, when it describes Abraham, it'll say, or when it describes the city, it'll say Ur of the Chaldees. And so it's almost like you've got London, and then you've got London, Connecticut, or something like that, or Newport, or Newport, California, or Newport, Oregon. And so the, uh, the theory that makes more sense is that Abraham was actually from up here in another place that had a connection with the original Ur that was the big city. And this was like one of their satellite cities that Abraham came from up here and then came down and settled into the promised land down here. And that just fits a lot better. Because like when Jacob went uh, to go get his bride, he says, you need to go home. And where was home? It wasn't all the way down here. It was way up here. But this was a recent discovery in the early 1900s. And it was such a big discovery. And the word got out that people just kind of accepted it. Oh, this must be the birthplace of Abraham. But it probably wasn't. Okay, so this area up here, this would be where the Hittites lived. And then there's this city called Ugarit. And then there's Nuzi. Where's Nuzi? Somewhere around. There it is, Nuzi. So these two cities, Ugarit and Nuzi, have all kinds of documents that they found, including different stories. 
And because of the documents and the stories, it shed a lot of light on different aspects of ancient Canaanite culture down here that they didn't know previously. And some of that I mentioned, like with Abraham's sister, like giving your, giving your married uh, wife a sister status was considered normal in that historical context. Uh, by the time it gets written, like I mentioned yesterday, they lost that context. But only recently have they discovered that a lot of these old ancient aspects that were written into Genesis actually show archaeological and some of the literature that came out of there showing that it was accurate in ways that even by the time they, they started putting the final form to the Old Testament down, they had lost the reason, but they still preserve that sacred oral tradition. You know, but these two cities in particular have a lot of uh, good archaeological evidence and writings that, that have a lot of parallels with the Canaanite, with the Canaanite uh, culture that Israel was a part of in the ancient, in the ancient world. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. This is Turkey. And then you've got Iraq right here. This is Iran right around there to the left. If you come up here, Armenia and all that kind of thing, you've got Russia up there. And then here's Egypt. That's still the same. And then Israel's right in here. You've got Lebanon here. Syria is in here. Anyway, um, Constantinople right there. And then Greece would be over there. <laughs> so Greece and Italy would be farther over to the left. It goes Greece first and then Italy. So, but anyway, that's the basic area. This is Saudi Arabia down here. Does that help? When I was a kid, I studied maps. So I just, it's like I take all this for granted. It's like, oh yeah, you know. So <laughs> Afghanistan's over that way. Yeah, <laughs> I thought someone was going to say, where's Lithoso? <laughs> All right. Um, why don't we take a break for a few minutes, and then I'll get into Abraham. So, All right, I'll call you all together when we're ready again. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.